0: Part of the argument that people, or explanation for that, is that we actually don't all want to sound the same. We want to sound like the communities that we come from.
1: I am Abdul Kizito,
0: an intern at the Institute for Humanities at the University of Michigan, and that was Dr. Anne Kurzan, a professor of English and the dean for the College of Literature, Science, and Arts at the University of Michigan. In her work, both as a professor and dean, Dr. Kurzan works to promote equitable learning and sociolinguistics as a core part of what makes us human. For this week's episode, Cole Simon was able to interview Dr. Kurzan about the role that language plays in our daily lives and how her perspective on academia and the humanities has
1: changed at different points in her academic career. Now we ask, why should you care? Dean, it's nice to sit down and talk with you today on this dreary Friday here in Ann Arbor. If you wouldn't mind for the few people out there who don't know who you are, would you mind giving just a little introduction?
0: I'd be happy to, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm Anne Curzan, and I'm a professor of English with uh, courtesy appointments in linguistics and in the School of Education. I study the history of the English language from Old English, time of Beowulf, through the present day. And I have been at the University of Michigan for 20 years on the faculty. I actually did my PhD here in the 1990s and left for my first faculty job and came back in 2002. And I've been doing administration for the last 18 years, both in the English department and then for the university and then in the the Dean's office of the College of Literature Science and the Arts, LSA. And this, I'm finishing my third year as the Dean.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so nice that you gave us that little background on how long you've been at the university as well as how long you've been in administrative roles. And I was kind of wondering, as you said, you came here as a PhD student, but obviously you didn't. You didn't start your academic career as a phd student so i was wondering if you could tell us a little bit as as you've kind of gone up the ladder from undergraduate student all the way up to now dean uh, in a liberal arts college if you could tell us kind of how your perspective on humanities as a general topic has changed how your involvement in the humanities has changed and and how you see it today in an increasingly stem-focused world
0: it's a it's a great question and it's interesting to think I think you're the first person to ask me about that in the kind of long arc of a career. I started college as a math major who, who really liked learning languages. And honestly, when I started college, I wasn't sure what linguistics was, except that it clearly had something to do with language and then started taking linguistics courses in college and fell in love with the field. Linguistics is an interesting discipline because some people will categorize it in the social sciences. Some of it is clearly humanistic. It, it sits, it's a very interdisciplinary field. Um, so I feel, and, and I'm a linguist who lives in the English department, which is a squarely humanistic discipline. Um, so I feel like I identify both as a humanist and as a social scientist uh, in terms of my training and my work. It was an interesting question when you said, what does it feel like to to the humanities in a STEM focused world? Mm -hmm. One of, for the past seven years, I think I have certainly seen one of my roles to be advocating for the humanities to a broad audience. And this is for four years, I was the associate dean for the humanities. And so that was clearly part of my job. And then as the Dean of the college, where we have three divisions, humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences, it's my job to advocate for all three divisions. And I take that really seriously. So I think one of the things that's changed for me is how I think about making that case. And and I am willing to make the case for for the humanities. In other words, I know that sometimes humanists can feel like we shouldn't have to make this case, people our value, we shouldn't have to feel defensive about this. And I don't feel defensive about it, but I do want to be persuasive about it and, and I start with and I stole this quote from another Dean who said that empathy is not just a value it's a skill. And I think that when you think about empathy that way as a skill that we are honing and we are honing in part through our education, you see why the humanities are so crucial because it is through the humanities among the many things we do in the humanities that we strive to understand the world from perspectives that are different from our own. Whether that's historical perspectives, it's studying other cultures, it's studying literature and art and music, this is how we come to understand the world in new ways. And that is how you build empathy. And so I think that's a really important part of the humanities. I also think about the last couple of years of the pandemic. And you think about what many people turned to when we were in quarantine to make sense of the world, as well as for joy and for comfort. People turned to literature and music and film. People read history to try to understand what we were going through. People turned to cultural studies. This was a critical resource for us to both make sense of and to get through this incredibly challenging period. And I think that in and of itself speaks to the value of both the arts and of humanities.
1: One thing that I've kind of noticed in the last couple of years, um, as as the world has started to go back towards pre-pandemic times, is it seems like some STEM people that I've talked to, um, it seems like there's a bit more of a desire to bring the humanities into the conversation and, and talk about like, hey, this engineering we're doing, this this um, you know programming stuff we're doing, it's all great but what does it mean if not for the humanities? Um, and it kind of sounds like that's that's what you're getting at about how you don't think you need to make a case for it, but you also, or, or go to defense for it as if it's this dying thing. But um, like you see it as something where it has a place in an, like an increasingly modern and technologically driven world. Is that is that right?
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and I think what I was trying to get at was I want us to make the case in a very positive forward-looking light as opposed to feeling embattled about it and defensive about it. And I think you do. You saw this before the pandemic and I agree with you that I think it has been strengthened in the pandemic, the, this interest in these intersections of STEM and the arts and STEM and thinking about all of the intersections with the humanities and what makes us human. Um, And that was, it's been exciting to see, again, I wanna make sure that people get credit for the efforts that were going on before the pandemic. Um, And it is certainly something that the university is trying to do through the arts initiative of trying to distribute the the arts and foster the arts across all the schools and colleges um, in ways that might strike people as surprising, but we are quite sure will be enriching and productive. Because all those intersections are there.
1: Yeah, and I know, in my own experience, I have a friend who's a a computer science major, who decided he wanted to take a a photography class at the residential college because he thought I need that that balance like I can't spend all day on a computer doing programming and coding, I need to express myself in other ways and see the world through that other lens.
0: Well, and one of my story that I love is a alum of LSA, who is now a doctor here at the university. And he will say that the most important class he took as an undergraduate was on Icelandic sagas, because in that course, it was the study of stories of narratives and how we tell them and how to interpret them. And what he says is that as a doctor, he spends all day hearing people's stories and trying to interpret people's stories and that that course which was about the very human art of storytelling and stories are how we transmit knowledge a lot of the time and that's been true throughout human history is this importance of narrative and again that's one of the things that we study and create and specialize in in the humanities so you you definitely see um, all the ways that people might not anticipate that the study of the humanities is going to change even their professional lives in in perhaps surprising, but not surprising in retrospect ways.
1: You, you have, as you said, a strong background in the English department. Mm-hmm. You have another podcast where you talk about language and words. And I, I wanted to ask you about the process of language shifting with generations how different terms come in and out of vogue how new words pop into existence um and kind of a broader kind of top or question should more value be placed on a word that's in a dictionary than some new slang that's on the streets and wouldn't make sense to anyone who isn't actively engaged in those circles where these words are being uh brought up and and created
0: it's so many great things to talk about in that question so um let me start big, and then we can get to dictionaries. Sure. Uh, your question about language change, and I'm going to add language diversity because um, they're both really important parts of any living language. And I think the first thing I would say is to to recognize the importance of language to our identities. And language is fundamental to who we are to our communities and and how other people understand us and and so sometimes people will say oh well you know you can just change your language and and certainly you can but it's important to recognize how fundamental it is to our understanding of ourselves and our presentation of ourselves and our links to our home communities or communities that we're joining and so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is helping people understand that linguistic diversity is part of diversity. And we don't always talk about linguistic diversity as part of diversity, but human diversity and the diversity of human communities means you also have vast diversity in languages and that's people speaking different languages and it's also people speaking different varieties of the same language. So what we would often call dialects, um, And one of the things that we see in the U.S. and elsewhere is that speakers will discriminate against other speakers based on how they speak. And so one of the things where I'm, and many of my colleagues here are really trying to make a difference is to help people, again, see that linguistic diversity is part of diversity, that being inclusive of language variety is part of inclusion and part of understanding diversity, and that we need to think about the gatekeeping and discrimination that happens around language. And there's a lot of it, and there's a lot of it that happens in schools. So um, that's something that I teach about in my courses and and try to do as a public intellectual as well. So the radio show that you mentioned, where on Sunday mornings I talk about language for four to five minutes, um, and, I, I met someone a few years ago who said, you know, I listen to you every Sunday morning and I realized that what you're saying to me is that I should just chill out about language a little bit. And I, and I loved it. And I said, that is actually at some level what I'm saying to you. And I would phrase it a little differently, which is to be kinder and to be more generous and more inclusive about language. And that's about linguistic diversity and it's about language change. So one of the things you see is that people will notice a change in the language and often their first reaction can be, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't. That's new and I don't like it. And that would be the tame version. The strong version would be that is incorrect, bad usage, broken language. And often this is older speakers who have more power criticizing the language of younger speakers who at that moment have less social power often. Um, It can also be more socially powerful groups criticizing less socially powerful groups more generally. Language change is part of a living language. And I would say it shows the creativity of the human brain and spirit. Um, We play with language. It's one of the fun things about my job is that I study something that people are really interested in. You think about Wordle right now. Um, or the spelling games on people's phones, or the fact that we play Hangman and Boggle and Scrabble and all these, We we like to pun. We like to play with language. We're interested in language. And one of the things we do through that play is change it. And this starts to get you to your question about dictionaries, which is that young people are forever gonna change the language. It's part of being a young person. It's also part of little kids learning language. And dictionary editors will say their job is to keep up with us. That is what they are trying to do. So they will say, now we got to watch that new word because some new words have their moment and then they just die. <laughs> they, they they don't have staying power. But if words have staying power, dictionary editors will try to get them in. But a word is a word if people know what it means. Even if it's not yet in standard dictionaries, it's still a word.
1: I love that description and, and you as someone with this you know strong background in language, being such an advocate for if people know what the word means and you can use it in conversation and people understand, it's a word, it's valid, it's so refreshing because <laughs> I know talking to like my dad or my grandpa, probably much more traditional and it's like, oh, that's not the dictionary, that's not a word, you kids with your slang, um, so it's really great hearing right. that other side of it.
0: And even that phrase, which is a very common one of it's not in the dictionary, which is fascinating when you step back from it, because it suggests that there is such a thing as the dictionary, which there is not. There are many different dictionaries published by different publishers. It's actually historically been a very competitive market where people have been trying to out-advertise each other because before the internet, Dictionaries, this was a lucrative business. Everybody needed a dictionary in their home. Every high school graduate was given a dictionary as their graduation gift. This was um, so dictionaries are different from each other. And um, this phrase of the dictionary suggests there's kind of one authoritative source. And when I will sometimes in my classes ask students, okay, so who edits the dictionary? And they just look at me like, huh. <laughs> I mean, clearly someone must, but who who would that be and they're like i don't know webster's descendants <laughs> so um and of course they're very human hands mm-hmm. behind dictionaries
1: yeah and I, I want to step back a little bit um when i first was asking you about language you were talking about how language is diversity and there's all this change even within america even within michigan you can go from the very southern michigan to as you go into the northern latitudes um the dialect will change the way we construct sentences will change i know i'm from not the way north but i'm I'm from the north and i know when i go home there is a difference in how how we speak up there and i wanted to ask you what that says about humanity because i don't think people would necessarily think about language being indicative and reflective of our humanity what it means to be human
0: yeah um So one, I think you're right that we don't necessarily think about language, especially right now in conversations about diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, So one thing where I sometimes start is if we think about definitions of culture and culture is very hard to define, but most definitions of culture will include language as part of culture. So that's sort of a starting point. And then to think about that, that language is one of the things that binds us within communities. And that can be, again, language writ large or dialects of a language. Um, and there was a sense that when, there, when television came um, and people start, that became um, a national resource that people were watching, that it would homogenize American English, that everybody would start talking the same because we all were watching the same television shows and Um, This has not happened. Uh, And if anything, there are linguists who argue that dialects in the US are getting stronger. Part of the argument that people, or explanation for that is that we actually don't all want to sound the same. We want to sound like the communities that we come from. And this can be a geographic community. This can be a social community. And this is a part of of our identification as people is the communities that we identify with. And you can go, there are bigger dialect areas and then there are sub dialect areas. So you were saying in Michigan, right? We have both lots of languages other than English that are spoken in Michigan and then different varieties of English that are spoken. And so North versus South and then African-American English, um, is spoken in Michigan. And, and one of the things with African-American English is that linguists have said, we need to recognize all of the variation within African-American English, that that is not, it's not one homogenous variety. There's actually a lot of variation, uh, both social and regional. So um, there, this is, it's a fascinating area of study. Uh, and one of the things that we notice and creates language variation is contact with other languages. So um, you have Chicano English in a lot of the United States. You've got um, other that are that are Im- the impact of language contact.
1: I wanted to broaden up a little bit again, you know, we've been talking about language and that's fantastic, but going back to you with your um, different perspectives on humanities at different levels from undergrad to PhD to, well, now the Dean of, of the LSA, um, do you have advice for, People who are majoring in the humanities. Just the other day at the Institute for the Humanities, we had a career panel with um, former graduates graduating from the humanities, um, talking to seniors and, and underclassmen about, "Hey, I graduated in the humanities. This is how it's gone for me. It's okay, you know. Don't listen to people who nay say your degree. It's important. And also, don't limit yourself to one identity. You can." do what you want to do. You can find a path. There were there was a great swath of different career trajectories there. It was, it was fantastic. And so cycling back to the, the question, just because I rambled for a moment, what do you think is some advice or some wisdom you could give to anyone who's pursuing or hoping to pursue a degree in the humanities?
0: I have a, I have a couple of thoughts. One is I think that you get the best education when you are studying things that you're passionate about. And this is why we encourage people to explore as part of their degree is to find the questions that light you up where you think, I really wanna know the answer to that question because then you're gonna, writing that paper and doing the research for it is actually gonna feel like a more fun chance to explore as opposed to an assignment. And that relates to another piece of advice that I would have which is when you're in a class and you get an assignment, take ownership of it and think about what can I use this to explore that I'm interested in, that I want to discover. Because again, you will do your best work when you are exploring the questions, trying to unknot the knots that you're interested in. So those are a couple of of thoughts on that. I think I would also say go to the LSA Opportunity Hub. Uh, We designed the Opportunity Hub to as a resource so that students could major in what they love and have a range of experiences that would help prepare them for whatever career path they wanna take after college, recognizing as you said, the, the range of careers that people go to from any major all across the college. And so we have coaches there who can connect our LSA students with alums who've gone into a range of professions think about career trajectories and also talk with students about how they want to talk about their degrees and how they want to talk about all the skills that they have acquired as a humanities major because you have acquired a lot of skills and a lot of skills that employers are very interested in and some of that is writing and some of that is critical thinking but it is also a creative approach to problem solving a willingness to sit within uncertainty and work through it, an ability to work in diverse teams an ability to understand the world from perspectives different from your own and to be able to articulate those when you are in an interview setting in the professional sphere. Um, That's something we really want all our humanities majors and our majors all across the college to be able to do.